This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. New federal rules aimed at protecting Africa's endangered elephants are sending shockwaves through parts of the music world. Under new regulations that began to take effect in February, musical instruments that have even the smallest amount of ivory are banned unless it can be proved that they were purchased before 1976. That includes any violin bows with a small piece of ivory at the tip and also some bassoon bells and piano keys. Musicians who are scheduled to perform abroad and then re-enter the U.S. are particularly concerned about this. To talk about it, we have three guests. On the phone is Craig Hoover, chief of the Wildlife Trade and Conservation Branch of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and Zachary Lewis, classical music and dance critic of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. With me here in the studio is Young Chin, a bowmaker who lives in New York. Young, I'm going to start with you. Why is there ivory on violin bows? Is this something that's purely decorative, or does it really have a function? Uh, The bow, as we know it today, the modern form, we can say existed starting around 1780, 1790, which was further done with somebody by the name of the Tort Brothers. Ivory has been used in history for a long time, and ivory at that time was very prevalent, and it was used to protect the head of the bow and help support the plug which holds the hair into the stick. Are violin bows still these days being made with ivory? Before 1980, we can say most of the better violin bows, viola, cello, double bass, were elephant ivory tips. Since the early 80s, certainly most of the trade has switched to mammoth ivory, which is extinct. For a good 5,000 years or so. So, Craig, presumably violin bows were not uppermost in people's minds at the Fish and Wildlife Service when the law was passed. What is the regulation aimed at? Well, what we have been seeing over the last several years is really a a dramatic and unprecedented increase in elephant poaching in Africa. Uh, On the scale of 30,000 elephants per year over the last several years have been slaughtered to supply the global demand for ivory. And as you just pointed out, that demand is not to put small pieces of ivory at the tips of violin bows. That demand is for whole tusks and for large carvings and uh, other larger products. Um, the, the value of ivory has gone up dramatically, um, and people are, are paying tremendous amounts of money to get large pieces of ivory. The target certainly has not been small pieces of ivory on old instruments. So why didn't the new law have exemptions built in for bits of ivory in old instruments? Well, so there are really two answers to that. One is that, of course, we are limited by the the laws that Congress gives us. And so it, it becomes very difficult to say, we're going to cover this commodity, but not this commodity, and this commodity, but not this commodity, when you're trying to protect a species and the products of those species. But to the extent that we are able, through our laws, regulations, and policies, we are carving out exceptions or rules that will allow certain activities to continue, such as the international movement of musical instruments. And we have been working very closely with the musical instrument world to try to develop mechanisms for allowing these instruments to continue to move internationally. Uh, under this regulatory regime that we're putting in place. Speaking of moving internationally, Zach, you are in Cleveland, and the Cleveland Orchestra is going to Europe in September. What are they worried about with the new law, and how are they preparing? 
Well, it depends who you talk to, uh, actually. I, I first heard about this from the musicians themselves, and they're very concerned if you speak with them. I know a couple of bassoonists, uh, several violin players, and they're, they're concerned about it. They're the ones who actually stand to have their instruments affected by this. The administration, on the other hand, doesn't seem to be in any case so concerned. I think that they have a lot of confidence, I believe, in the League of American Orchestras, which is advocating very strongly on their behalf, and in the American Federation of Musicians, which are also advocating very strongly. For them, though, it's really a, a waiting game, kind of a, a, just a, a matter of time. Uh, their tour is not until September, uh, and I think they're hopeful that um, some exceptions will be made to allow their tour to go forward. I understand that two major orchestras have already been on tour under the new rules, San Francisco and L.A. They weren't stopped at the border. Did you do any research on what happened to them? Nobody really wanted to talk about that too much, <laughs> to be honest with you. They did complete their tours successfully. Um, I think that's probably just a case of you know the, the rules not being strictly enforced uh, at, at, the, at the borders. Um, but uh, well, I, again, I'm not sure well, I was not there. In fact, we did work with both of those organizations to make sure that they had proper documentation for their instruments. And so we did help to facilitate their movement out of the country and back into the country. So, as I said, we are trying to work with um, these organizations to the extent that we are able to under the law to make sure that they can continue to engage in, in activities legally and with all the proper documentation. Uh, I'd like to add one thing to what Craig said. I look at this process. Uh, I speak for the industry of the violin the bow trade. We look at this process not as adversarial positions. We're trying to work together. I can say we've had several meetings with Craig and his group, and I have to say they have been very, very helpful within the scope of what he just said. All of us want to see the elephants preserved. None of us are in favor of, of the killings. Of course, the unintended consequences is why we're, we're kind of here, and I do think I'm actually hopeful that we can come to a sustainable solution not only for the elephants but for music itself. So, Young, what should a musician do who's traveling abroad? Say he bought a bow from you a few years ago before any of this was an issue. He doesn't have documentation. What can he do to prepare, he or she, do to prepare for a trip? Well, under the current regulation, and Craig, please correct me if I'm I'm wrong. I'm still quite confused about some of this. If it, let's assume it has elephant ivory on it, if it has elephant ivory on it and was bought after 1976, you cannot get a music passport. Is that correct as of now, Craig? That, that is correct under the terms of the, the director's order that we released in, in February. But uh, again, we are continuing to have these discussions with stakeholders who are impacted by the director's order to find ways to facilitate these activities, again, when we're convinced that they really have no bearing on elephant poaching. And so we're, we're continuing to explore ways that we might be able to work through some of these issues. Well, so translate for me. What does that mean if I am a musician going on tour with my bassoon in two weeks and I don't have documentation? Well, Stepping back from the the most recent action in the director's order, one of the things that we're really all discovering in this process is that a real lack of awareness of an international treaty that has been regulating the movement of elephant ivory across international borders for 40 years. It's a treaty called the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species. And so some of the angst and some of the concern about these new announcements really relates more to the fact that there was this international treaty that wasn't being complied with and that we were unaware 
impacted the musical instrument world. And so we're really trying not only to make sure that people are compliant with our more recent rules, but also with this international treaty, because just as we don't want traveling musicians to run into problems at our borders, we don't want them to run into problems with their instruments in Europe or in Asia, because there are 180 countries that have joined this, this international treaty. So if you are planning to travel internationally, you need to contact our office and you need to work through the permitting system. And if you have sufficient information to document the legality of your instrument, we can issue you a document that will facilitate the movement internationally of your instrument. I think uh, something that Craig's alluding to is that if, if we can have more harmonization throughout the world on, on this issue, then there will be a lot less problems. But to go back to your original question, Naomi, there are many traveling musicians, as you know, and they have their concert schedule planned out two to three years ahead. So some have only found out about this recently. So they have elephant ivory tips. So they can either go through uh, the office that Craig talks about, but if it's a two-week period, he's not going to be able to get the paperwork done. There's just too many people are going to apply. But so what I have advocated so far also is if people have these uh, valuable bows, we have been putting synthetic tips on them or mammoth tips. We have been taking the ivory off. It's a very difficult job. You have to be very, very careful. You have bows that are worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And it's it's a big responsibility not only to the musician but to the art itself to the, uh, keep the integrity of the bow intact. What happened is... The suddenness of when the ruling came out in February 25th is what really has caused a problem. As Craig is right, there have been laws around since 40 years, but all of a sudden on February 25th, the director's order came into effect. And I can assure you, 98% of the music world knew nothing about it. And what are your customers saying about all well, of this? Well, in the music world, it's the hottest. In the string world, it's the hottest story around the world. You have... Even foreign orchestras are coming in the country. At the time when this happened, Vienna Philharmonic was on tour, went through San Francisco, actually was had a, uh, the director of the Vienna Philharmonic had a dinner with a colleague of mine who's a professor at Berkeley. She was an ex-violin maker, but she's in a violin-making group. She's involved with the process that we're all working on. And they were flabbergasted at this. They were very worried about coming back into the country. As you know, the Vienna Philharmonic, what are they known for? as one of the greatest sounding orchestras in the world. And I'm sorry, you will not get that out of playing a synthetic bow. Synthetic bows don't give you the variation of sound, which is a fundamental of all kinds of music, whether you like rock, you like jazz, uh, you like string playing, whatever. The fundamental of music is variation of sound. So you have a natural material like Pernambuco, which is the greatness of that product. We have to find a way so that all of us can continue in this. So the Vienna Philharmonic got in, and they got back out again. Craig, did uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service have anything to do with that? We certainly have been in touch with a, a number of different uh, organizations, both um, overseas and domestically, to, again, to try to make sure that everything goes smoothly, that people are aware of what the requirements are and meet those requirements. Zach, are you in Cleveland? Are folks in touch with the Fish and Wildlife Service? 
I think that they're working through the League of American Orchestras, and, and they've had several meetings about that, about that issue. Uh, and then the league, is in turn, I believe, is working with Craig and his, his people. Again, I think they're, I think they're pretty hopeful um, that, that by September that this can be worked out and that exceptions can be made and the paperwork and, and uh, certifications can be obtained in time for that. Craig, there is a part of this law that says some sport hunting of African elephants is allowed and hunters are allowed to import two trophies a year. How did that happen? And you can't import or export musical instruments with a tiny bit of ivory. So under the both the Endangered Species Act and the African Elephant Conservation Act, as well as under the international treaty that I referred to previously, there is some allowance for sport hunting when that sport hunting is demonstrated to be part of a legal, well-managed wildlife management regime. And so there are a small number of countries that continue to effectively manage their elephant populations. And in some instances, in some areas, have more elephants than the habitat will really, really allow. And sport hunting does put a substantial amount of revenue back into conservation programs in those countries. For those small number of instances where there's a a good demonstration that there are resources going back into conservation, yes, we do allow the non-commercial import of sport hunted trophies from a handful of African countries. But what we're not saying is you can do this, but you can't bring in your musical instrument. In both instances, they're regulated under the same laws, and there are specific requirements that have to be met. Have there been any confiscations yet of instruments under this law? No, I don't believe so. Young, do you have colleagues in Asia who are dealing with this issue? The information is really only basically here in this country and starting to get into Europe. The Asians barely know about it. But uh, Asia is, is where most of the ivory is flowing, is it not? That's where ivory is highly prized. I, I believe so. I, that's, I've been told this. But we also know that the New York market, of, uh, according to things that we've been discussing, is a very big market. So it's not only the Asian. I, I am ethnic Chinese, so sorry. <laughs> but uh, I, I would say that you have a lot of musical instruments. Certainly there's a big, big Asian contingent. And they're only, they don't really know about this yet, and we're trying to get the information out to, out to the shops and colleges, institutions, et cetera. Craig, is there anything else instrument-related that is on your agency's radar, like maybe tortoiseshell or rare wood species? There are certain, there's, absolutely. There are certainly other, other wildlife species and other um, exotic wood or rare wood species that are used in mus- musical instruments. The, the ones that rise to the top in addition to elephant ivory are, are certainly uh, tortoiseshell, which traditionally is derived from hawksbill sea turtles, which are, is an endangered species, and Brazilian rosewood, uh, which is uh, a rare and um, highly regulated Latin American uh, timber species, uh, which is typically used in guitars and other uh, other instruments, and uh, and again, these are items, these are commodities um, and and wildlife parts that are regulated under this 40-year-old international treaty. So this really has nothing to do with the director's order or the administrative actions we've announced recently. It has to do with ensuring that the musical instrument world is compliant with this uh, 40-year-old international treaty and that we're working together to make sure that they are. Is there a time frame for getting any possible amendments passed to help out musicians? So there will be public input periods going forward. Um, this, most likely this summer, 
when we will propose new rules, the public, the musical instrument world, the antique world will have an opportunity to give us feedback about what we're proposing, and we will have to consider all of those comments and address all of those comments before we move to a final rule. So there's a, a pretty robust public input process um, as we move forward. Just very quickly, New York State and I think maybe Hawaii or California, they actually have introduced legislation to also ban Mastodon. It is sitting in the New York State Assembly, and, and they are working on this. The trade has very recently, since actually around January, middle of February, we have started using different kind of synthetic materials. We think we have found a few that are, are, are plausible that can work. It's not doesn't have the strength, the big drawback so far, doesn't have the strength of ivory, but we think it could work. But our concern, and this is something where we would need the help of Craig and his colleagues, is this material is an ivory imitation, but it's totally a synthetic. But our, again, this thing looks very close to ivory, and I, I, I would be nervous. I have some colleagues call me today about coming over from Europe for a show, and they're going to have these new materials on. I says, no, no, bring, I told them, just tell them what it is. You put it on, bring a sample, and so you can show them that it's not ivory. So hopefully we will work on this, but, you know, with the help of, of Craig and his group, I hope we also can come through with some certain kinds of testings or understanding so that people don't have the fear and trepidation of traveling around with their with their materials. Fingers crossed, and we will continue to follow this. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were the bowmaker, Young Chin, Cleveland Plain Dealer music critic, Zachary Lewis, and Craig Hoover of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.